Thank you, guys. Let's say thanks to the band and worship team. Again. Really beautiful. So helpful. I love that song. I sing that song to myself at night. Well, if you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a conversation, a four-part conversation on the global culture of Jesus. As you know, there's a lot of talk about race in society today. But the question we want to take up is, how do we engage that conversation as followers of Jesus? What does that look like? We've been learning that first thing is we engage it with a spirit of gentleness, the spirit of Jesus. And the second thing we realize is that God has a plan for the nation. Jesus reveals this plan and that gives us a unique perspective to share. Today I want to think about the problem of racism and what all goes wrong. And what's our part in ending racism? When we raise that question in a Christian context, we realize we have unique resources uh, in the scriptures because racism is a sin and the Bible would identify that as, as a sin. And we know what to do with sin uh, because of the teachings of scriptures. And there are three grand notes that I want to explore with you today in relationship to relate racism. And, and that is uh, faith and repentance and grace. Faith, repentance, and, and uh, love. Sorry, sorry, faith, repentance, and love. And as we, uh, uh, as we do that, what I want to do is a little bit of a case study. Take our, one of our favorite prophets, Jonah, and see how these things work out in Jonah's life. So would you open up your Bible to Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. And uh, if you're able, would you stand? Let's read God's word aloud together. We're kind of catching this middle of the story, but for some of you this is a familiar story. And uh, we'll read from verse 7 down to verse 16, and when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Uh, listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. The sailors said to one another, come let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the earth dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. 
Someone said there was a girl on an airplane one time. She pulls a book out of her backpack and begins to read. And the guy in the seat next to her says, hey, what are you reading? And she said, oh, it's the Bible. He said, the Bible? You read the Bible? Yeah. She don't really believe the stuff in the Bible about walking on water or coming back from the dead or that Jonah lived three days in the belly of a whale. You don't believe that, do you? And she said, well, I'm not sure. Maybe you know, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And he said, well, what if he's not in heaven? And she said, well, then you can ask him. I know when we read Jonah, we kind of focus on the, the great fish. And we know that part if we know anything about Jonah. But I think it's really our modern skepticism that preoccupies us with that kind of a miracle. Really, I think to an ancient reader, the main character of the book of Jonah is not the great fish. It's not even Jonah. I think the main character for them would be race. Race. That's the word we would use. I am a Hebrew, Jonah says. This is the first time he speaks in the book. That tells us something. He opens his mouth, and that's what he says. I am a Hebrew. Now, they did ask, you know, who, who he was, but scholars tell us there are three things he could have said in response to that. He could have said, I'm an Israelite, political designation. He could have said, I'm a Jew or a, a Judahite. Uh, they would have thought that was a regional designation. But he doesn't say that. To say I'm a Hebrew is to use an ethnic designation. In other words, he says, I am something that you could never be. See, this, this, he's on a boat and they're sailors and the sailors are most likely Philistines on the shore or, or Phoenicians, ethnic people that are not Hebrews. He's, he, he says, I am a Hebrew. <laughs> he's announced, he's saying it. The, the Hebrew here is emphatic and the tone is superior. And the narrator is saying to the reader, uh-oh, something's not right here. There's something not right. It's true, but there's something not right about that statement. Might be like if I'm in the back of the line at the coffee shop and I suddenly raise my voice and say, I am a white man. And you're like, whoa, there's something not right about that statement. I mean, whatever's true in it, it's, that's very uncomfortable. And that's the sense that the Hebrew reader would be picking up uh, from Jonah. He says, I am a Hebrew. Race. It's the main character of the book of Jonah. So that makes it it's a great book for our study of the question, well, like, what's our part in ending racism? That's, the, that's what we want to focus on. What's our part in ending racism? Well, as I say, there are these great notes that we find throughout the Bible, and we find them here in the book of, of Jonah. We're going to walk through the whole book of Jonah today. So faith, repentance, and love. So let's take them in turn. First of all, faith. You know this, if you've been around Jesus at all, we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is central. And I just say, poor Jonah uh, he has to wrestle with faith right at the beginning of the book because we're told the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. There's a word of grace breaking into Jonah's life right in the very beginning of the letter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, we read, son of Amittai, that's 1-1, verse 1-1. Here's a word of grace coming from the Lord. And Jonah's having to go, do I believe it, right? Like I relate to Jonah at this point. Do I really believe it? Now, I say it's a word of grace for two reasons. First of all, because Jonah tells us that. You've got to flip forward. Turn, turn chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah says this. 
That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew you are, here it is, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. I knew you were going to take our ethnic enemies and instead of giving them judgment, which everybody knows they deserve, you were going to rain down grace. And I hate that. Jonah's burning with anger at that moment because of grace. So he knows that the word of the Lord that's coming to him is a word of grace. The second reason we know that is because it comes twice. And here the narrator wants you to notice that. First time it comes, Jonah didn't really have any faith in the word. He's supposed to go east to Nineveh near modern Iraq. He goes down to the coast Joppa, city of Joppa, buys a ticket goes on a cruise to Tarshish, which is where modern-day Spain is today. So he hears the word the first time. He disobeys the word the first time. And what happens? God loves him anyway. God still loves him. God pursues him. God doesn't give up on him. God sends a fish, not to punish him, but to rescue him. God saves his life with that fish. And then we read again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's grace. That's God's grace. Ah, Jonah. Jonah experiences grace for himself. Grace. This is God's character. This is God's plan. This is what's driving the ultimate solution to the problem of racism in all problems. And so the question for Jonah from the very beginning is, Jonah, do you believe in grace? Do you have faith? In grace. Now, I want to suggest to you today that this is the question beneath the problem of racism. Core question. Remember how hard it was for God to break the grip that racism had on Peter's life? Remember that, the Apostle Peter? He had to wrestle with the question of faith and grace as well. He has a bit of a breakthrough in Joppa. Actually, it's the same town, Joppa. Uh, The word of the Lord comes to him. It's a word of grace. Uh, He has a vision, a dream, the sheet coming down. Then there's another man, Cornelius, who's a Roman. The word of the Lord comes to him. And the Lord brings the two together by the Holy Spirit. And Peter realizes he can sit at a table with a non-Jew. Cornelius is probably a Roman guy and break bread together in fellowship. And he goes, wow. Uh, Acts 10, 34, he says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. It's a breakthrough for Peter. And by the way, look, that statement is profoundly um, uh, antagonistic to any uh, sense of racial superiority, right? This radically undermines any discrimination on the basis of ethnicity. And it has that effect on Peter. He becomes this advocate for racial equality in the church. You can see it in his letters. But, but, but he, he has a setback. So that happens. And then a few years later, uh, we find that Peter's had a, a setback. He, still, racism is still kind of clinging to some part of his soul. Because in, Gal- in Galatians 2, Peter tells us, uh, Paul, the another apostle, tells the story of a, of a conversation that he has with Peter around race. Apparently, Peter and some Jewish Christians were separating themselves from some other non-Jewish Christians, and, and they weren't eating at the table, and Peter was kind of just separating himself. And so the Paul, Apostle Paul comes alongside of him with a word of grace. I want you to notice how Paul addresses. Here's Paul 
doing his part to try to end racism right here. He comes with, to Peter with a word of grace. Here's Galatians 2, 14 to 16. Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that's Peter and these other Jewish Christians, they weren't acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter in front of them all, hey, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul does this. First, it's not you jerk. It's gentleness. He, he, he's probably prayed for a soft heart. And then there's some soft words. He says, not you, but we. He says, we know. So gentleness. And then the second thing is grace. It's a, he, he shares that word of grace with them. He, he, Jesus, uh, Paul understands that if he's going to motivate Peter to something better, he's going to have to do it through grace. He, he says, I want you to be in line with the gospel. And he, Tim Keller points out that pa Paul didn't say, repent of the sin of racism, you bigot. Right? No, he says, repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You've forgotten grace, Peter. And, and, and Paul calls his brother back to grace in such a gentle way. See, for me, I think the problem with so many of our conversations today around race really just express a spirit of self-righteousness. Like if I tell a neighbor, hey, you shouldn't be a racist. Well, they're going to think I'm coming across as a self-righteous jerk, right? I'm somehow saying you're morally inferior to me. And they'll just at best resent me at worst. It's something dangerous. But if I share a word of grace with the neighbor, then I'm, I'm addressing the sin beneath the sin. Because racism is fundamentally self-righteousness. It's just one form of self-righteousness. I am a Hebrew. But grace... But grace has no room for self-righteousness. Grace needs no room for self-righteousness. Grace says to you, hey, you're loved. You're accepted. You're justified. You're worthy. You're secure. You're not just good enough. You're beloved because of the costly sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You're good. So that's the word that comes to Jonah here at the beginning. It's a, it's a word of grace, and it's a call to respond in faith. So faith is the first thing that we can do to end racism. Next, there's another great note. Let's look at this. Repentance. Major theme in the book of Jonah, taken as a whole. Jesus, remember, says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the Hebrew word for repentance is the word just for turn. It means turn. When we meet Jesus, we turn. When we experience God's grace, we turn. Paul says at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, grace is meant to turn us. But notice, around Jonah doesn't just change one's relationship with God, it also changes one's relationship to neighbors, even the whole neighborhood. Let me give you a few examples of this in the text. First of all, the sailors turn, it changes the neighborhood on the deck. Look at verse 13. The men rode hard to return. It's a little bit hard to see this in English. That's the King James Version, but it's the Hebrew, it's translating the Hebrew word turn. The men rode hard turning. Now they're literally turning, but also they're spiritually turning. We see that the way they react to the crisis on the deck. All of a sudden, they're, we read they're, they fear the Lord. All of a sudden, they're starting to preoccupy with innocent blood. They're wanting to sacrifice themselves to protect an ethnic minority. See the the neighborhood on the deck is, is changing. 
It's almost like there's enough grace in the wayward prophet to somehow provoke pagans to do very faithful things. Sailors turn, verse 13. Then the city of Nineveh turns in chapter 3, and this is very surprising. Here we read, this is a proclamation of the king, verse 8, chapter 3. The king says, all shall turn, that's the word, from their evil ways, it's repentance, and from the violence that is in their hands. Take the violence out of your hands, he says. Now, as you read the whole account there in chapter 3, the narrator is very careful to point out two things to you. It's, like, it's almost like a two-step process. First, there's faith. They believe, verse 4. And secondly, there's this decree to turn the whole city, to change the nature and character of life in the city. That is a really big deal. If you know your history and you know anything about Nineveh, it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was renowned for its vicious, vicious brutality. Uh, just a generation later, Nahum, another prophet in Israel, would write this. Ah, city of crime, writing about Nineveh. City of crime, utterly treacherous, full of violence, where the killing never stops. And yet, all shall turn, the king says. Let's turn. And the text says, from the king to the lowest animal. Isn't that interesting? Like, from the king to the lowest animal, there's this turning. Which I think suggests that every sector of society needs to turn. Right, right, from the political to the social to the religious, the legal, the economic, the educational, the medical, the scientific. Every sector has got to turn. See, the whole culture has to turn. And it says kings and nobles. So I take that to mean the king propagates through people of influence, the nobles, that each noble then has to take their own sphere of influence and help that sphere turn so the sailors are turning, the city of Nineveh is turning, changing the conditions on the deck, changing the conditions in this ancient city, the capital of Assyria. The thing is, Jonah's having a hard time turning, right? I mean, that's the goal, isn't it? Isn't that the purpose? Isn't that that's why the storm comes to wake Jonah up and turn him back to the assignment that the Lord had given him? God wants to turn Jonah, but he doesn't. I mean, it, it, his solution to the storm is, well, just throw me into the water. <laughs> the reader goes, like, that's not the answer. No, Jonah, you just turn and go back to Nineveh and you're good. Instead of saying, I am a Hebrew, he should be saying, God bless you Phoenicians. Right? God bless you Philistines. He should be saying, God bless you Ninevites. He should be saying, what he says in chapter 4, when he's angry, God is gracious and merciful God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Well, I wonder what that grace would look like in our city today, I wonder. Remember that the book of Nineveh is not written for the Ninevites. To my knowledge, it wasn't published in Assyria. It was published in Israel, and it's meant for the cities of Israel, most especially for Samaria, the capital at the time. The whole book is constructed masterfully. The narrator has set up the audience for a great surprise. It's, in the beginning, he set it up in such a way that their racial animus is actually provoked. But then it melts in this story of grace. A story that turns racial dynamics and is meant to tr turn them in Israel and in their cities as well. 
So first, when the story begins, uh, the way the text is written would really, I think, resonate with the Israelites' sense of grievance and resentment and self-righteous ethnic superiority. Do you know that the Assyrians were oppressing the Israelites at this time? For almost a hundred years, the Israelites had to pay tribute to Nineveh just to live their lives. And soon, Ninevites would come and destroy Israel. So there's absolutely immense ethnic resentment in the reader when they read this. And look, look how the book starts. After the word of the Lord comes, we read verse 2, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come against me. And they're going, all right, this is going to be a good one. Kids, gather around. We're going to kill us some Ninevites, and God's going to do it, right? Righteous self-righteousness, right? It's provoked. But by the end, it's not racial animus that wins the day. Racial animus is actually confronted in Jonah, and it's God's grace that wins the day. A huge transformation just in one little text. So the book itself, what I'm saying is the book itself as a whole, with its sailors and its kings and nobles of Assyria, these foreigners, raises a question for Israel and I think for us. What would racial repentance look like? What would racial justice look like in our city? How does our sense of ethnic superiority, whoever we are, past or present, harm people in our city? And how does our city create unequal opportunities for different ethnicities? And it's worth asking, right? These, I think the text puts those questions in front of us. So poor Jonah, he's really struggling with his faith. And because of that, he can't seem to turn. Repentance seems hard. But we can. We believe in Jesus. We receive his grace. We can reorient our lives. We call that repentance. And we're trying to do that every week here. And doing that can help end racism turn, turn ourselves and turn the conditions in our city. Because as Jesus says at the very beginning of his ministry, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's here. Which brings us to our third and greatest of all notes in the Bible, and you know this one, and it's love. For God so loved the world he gave. And this is, we can all love, and I know we all do love one way or another, wherever you are in your faith journey. And the, the point is here, it matters. Love matters. Yeah, we're not all kings. We're not all nobles. We can't all just make decrees, you know. Even parents don't get to do that and change the laws and make rules and expect perfect obedience in our society. But love, love makes a difference. That's the teaching here. God's love through the Holy Spirit changes us, it motivates us, and it gives us a resource that affects our spheres of influence, however large or however small. Love prompts us to care for those who've been hurt by racism, to promote racial equity, to end racism, love. It covers a multitude of sins. It's the essence of the law. It's the greatest commandment. It's the nature of God, love. And so what does this book have to tell us about what love is? Well, I want to suggest to you, it's not just an attitude here. It's an action. It's an action. It's going somewhere and doing something. See, the book of Jonah ends with a question. The Lord asked Jonah, and I think through Jonah, all of Israel, and us, if you'll accept it, should I not be concerned about Nineveh? 
Should I not be concerned, the Lord says to Jonah about Nineveh. So this gives us a definition for love. Love is active concern. It's it's not just warm feelings or gushy sentimentality in the Bible. Love is an active concern for the welfare of another. It would be so easy for Jonah just to sit under the shade of his vine and convince himself that he loves the Ninevites without even getting to know one, without doing anything about the wickedness that makes cities so hard for the people there. He can think that he can love. Can he? Can he think that he loves and do nothing? Can he think that he loves and leave the pain to other people? Can he think that he loves and leave the problem to others? The reader will say no. Right? We watch Jonah. He leaves the city. He sits on a hill and looks across the valley. and He kind of waits for the fireworks, I guess. He's hoping. And then while he's there waiting, God appoints a bush to give him shade. And he goes, ah, this is lovely. I'm so comfortable. Then God appoints a worm to eat the shade, the, the shade plant, the vine. And now he's angry. And here's the question that the whole story sets before the reader. Do you care more about your own comfort than you do about people in need. That's the prophecy of Jonah. Do you care more about your own comfort than you care about people in need? Ah, that's, the, that's a hard question. I gotta say, for me, I find this question very personally challenging. There's something in me that wants to believe that if I can just think the right thoughts about race, if I can just use the right terminology when I talk about race, if I can just read the right books and post the right articles, that somehow I'm making a difference. But the problem is, the problem is still the problem. And people are still suffering. If that's all I do, the only thing that's changing is me. I feel better about me. But have I done anything for anyone else who suffers racial harm? Have I changed the structure or dynamics of the challenge in our city. And the, the problem is, I really like my comfort. I like to live under the shade of my vine. I like my life just the way it is. It's working for me. I want to end racism, but I also want to do whatever I can to comfort myself and my family. But in this text, I hear the challenge. I hear the Lord asking me, George, would you be willing to give up some of your comfort if that's what it takes to love? If that's what it takes to act out of concern for the welfare of another, would you leave your booth long enough to make a difference in the city? Well, let me take it one step further and confess that for me the resistance is fear. Do you know that the opposite of fear is not hatred? The opposite of fear, I'm sorry, the opposite of love is not hatred, it's fear. Fear is the barrier. But dear friend, I want you to see what happens to fear in this story. Fear is swallowed up by love. This the whole story is a beautiful, gentle story. There's nowhere Jonah can go to get away from God's love. There's nothing Jonah can do to fall away from God's love. God is there loving in the beginning. He's there loving in the end. This Lord loves all people equally. He loves even the animals, the, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the worms. He moves the wind and the waves in his love. He determines the cast of the lot with his love. He sends a great fish in his love. He grows a vine in his love. And the good news is that perfect love in Jesus casts out fear. That makes a difference. That makes a difference. So faith, repentance, love.
That's our part in ending racism. That's something we can do, can't we? If you ever think that, ending, that racism is just too big of a problem and your life is just too small, I want you to remember Jonah. Yeah, he's just one guy, a Hebrew, but God has supercharged his life with grace and love and power. Wherever he goes, all of creation seems to rise to support him. Whatever he does, all of the circumstances seem to collude to empower him. And I suppose we're to take the, the same is true for us if we put our faith in Jesus. By the way, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I urge you to do it today. You can come to upc.org slash Jesus. You can come down and speak to one of us and the prayer team after the service. Remember this great promise of Romans chapter 8. says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. We are Jonah. So remember Jonah. And if ever you think giving up a little comfort is just too big a risk, then remember Jesus. Because in Jesus, God gave up his comfort for you and for me. Out of an active concern for our welfare, he threw himself overboard to save our lives. He allowed himself to be pinned to a tree to heal our waywardness and to redeem our ethnic wounds. So that we get to say, in the end, it's not racism that wins. It's Jesus. And that's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you have opened the door on your eternal love. And you have invited us in. You've come out in the Savior, Jesus Christ, flesh and blood, to grab us in your arms and pull us back in. Then you've sent forth your Holy Spirit that we might be the flesh and blood representation of Jesus in our city and in our world. So we pray, knowing our weaknesses and limitations, we pray that you'll do for us what you did for Jonah. Just turn us and free us and empower us to love with the kind of love that makes a difference. In Jesus' name, amen.